Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman, back from my holiday. Um, I bet you're glad to get rid of that award-winning wiki shuffle lot, aren't you? Oh yeah, we were desperate for you to come back, Steve. I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, personally, I, I don't know how they won that award. <laughs> I've never laughed once listening to that shambles. That's not very nice. Hi you're guys. Just you're Hi, just jealous because Jack did Hi. such a good job. Hi wiki shuffle. <laughs> when am I going to be invited to host Wiki Shuffle? When are you going to host or, Wiki Shuffle? Yeah, or just be on it? I'd be, I'd be great on it. You, you you're going to have to do a rogue episode. <clears throat> just do one on your own. Yeah, just a just a sample. Yeah, drop, <laughs> drop a sample on them. Anyway, yeah, that's maybe yes. that's maybe what you've got to do. Just pitch it. One, just one episode. Yeah. We just in the middle of a failed critics recording. Yeah. Just pitch a Wiki Shuffle. Just I was, yeah, I was Wiki Shuffling when they were on though. Anyway, I'm joined by Owen Hughes. Yes, hello again. And Matt Lambourne. Good evening, gentlemen. As we take a look through the last week or so in film and television, including the Emmy Awards, new release, Everest, and a triple bill um, looking at our favourite low-budget films. But we're going to start off with the quiz, which is delicately poised at two apiece. Winner takes it all. Owen hosting, me against Matt. Winner recommend something to the other one will it be good will it be bad who knows find out in a minute <laughs> yeah but this is going to be as shambolic as any of our quizzes because it involves maths and we all know how terrible that goes when i am hosting a quiz that uses maths so um apologies in advance but hopefully it will i've taken taken note from what phil did last week and i've set up a spreadsheet with the maths already there. So all I have to do is put a number in. And in theory, it should work. That's it. Okay. You fire up that Excel 95. Yeah, that's it. But okay, basically, the, how this quiz is going to work is because our triple bill is going to be on films made for less than $1 million. Uh, that's films with a budget of less than $1 million. I had a look at some of like the first films that were made for, for that amount of money. And there was a film in 1922 that came out. Okay, and There was a film called Foolish Wives. And um, that was the first movie to uh, apparently have a $1 million budget. It was very extravagant and it, it was a bit of a flop because it was apparently a bit shit. But, you know... That's by the by. And then it got me thinking, well, how much was a million dollars then compared to now? 
due to inflation, you know, and been a bit bit nerdy. I worked today. And the equivalent of one million dollars in 1922 would be today accounting for inflation. Uh, it's about forty seven point five million dollars in today's money. That's still quite a modest movie budget. Yeah, it is. I guess it shows the sort of changing tides of of how big business movie is these days. But then it also got me thinking, well, what what's the difference between other films and when they were made and what their modern equivalent budgets would be? And that's where this quiz comes in, because I've had a look at some of these films and I've worked out using an, a calculator online what the modern equivalent budget would be. OK, so I'm going to ask you a series of questions and you both get a chance to answer. And it's whoever guesses closest to what the equivalent budget for today would be. All right. And to make it a little bit more tricky, I'm not going to tell you what the original budget was. So you may have an advantage if you know, and you might be able to work it out that way. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Okay. So first question is Star Wars. The original Star Wars and New Hope. What do you reckon the budget for that would be in today's money? I'm going to say in today's money, Star Wars would cost $72 million to make. $72 million. Okay. And Matt? Mm. Right. Um theorising my answer based on the sort of revenue share deal that a lot of the actors were on, whereby they were getting paid mm-hmm. on the gross of the merchandise. So I'll say $72 million, so I'll take the under on Steve's guess. Well, Steve's was 72 Oh, I'll take 71 then. $71 million. <laughs> Okay. So um, after that one, Matt is the winner. Yes. It was made for $11 million in 1977. And so its equivalent value today is $43 million. So by just going that one lower, Matt, you're the winner so far. Yay. Yay. Okay, second question. Uh, Again, I want today's modern equivalent value for its budget. uh, And it's for American History X. Ooh, it's one of my favourite films. Mm, So I picked one that was Steve's favourite and one that was yours. So that was on purpose. Okay. To be fair to Steve, I'll go first on this one then. Go on. Um, so, it can't have changed that much in like 10 years, whatever it's been. I'm going to say 20 million. You're going for 20 million? Okay. Steve? I'm going to be a twat and say 21 million. You're going to say 21 million? Uh, and the winner is Matt. <laughs> Yay! Get in there. It was made in 1998 for $7.5 million, which works out today around about $11 million. So, Good not hours. much difference. Yeah. That's, that's quite close. Um, so, okay, Matt, you've got two. There are three more questions. So, Steve, you've got to get this one right to stay in it. No pressure. No pressure. I don't I... believe in pressure. <laughs> I want today's... Uh, budgetary value for Ben-Hur. Wow, that's a tricky one. Because mm. you've got to kind of work out what it was worth back then as well. How big was its budget when it was made? 
$112 million. Okay. <laughs> I've got to think given the cast and the whole... I, I didn't think. Epicness. Just said a random number. <laughs> Just picked a number. I'm going to go higher, so 113. You're going to just do one up again. Yeah, that's the right way of doing it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you've actually won again then, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, it was made in 1959 for $15.75 million, which works out today at $129 million. Oh, it's pretty close anyway. It was very close, yeah. 113, I think you said. So just by being that one more, yeah, you pipped him to the post. Good game, Well done, Matt. Yeah. Uh, So, Steve. Yeah. You want to know what film you're going to have to watch? Yeah, go on then. Condor Man. (laughs) It's not Condor Man. I'm taking a leaf out of Steve's book, actually, because he gave me a film, Next Goal Wins, that he thought I would like. So, Steve... You're going to have to watch Citizen Kane. Ooh, <laughs> black and white. Black and white. There's <laughs> no subtitles. Black and white's there. not the problem. Yeah. I just black... reckon it's going to be overhyped nonsense. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Because if you watch it for next week's episode, we can we can find out. I still think it's a really good film. And so, yeah, I am looking forward to, to hearing what you make. Of just the, need to find the... Uh... Uh, way of viewing it but yes that's fine i was going to make you watch uh, left behind starring nicholas cage if that's any oh god (laughs) i've heard nothing but bad things about that film (laughs) well i'm saving it for next time so oh good anyway on to the news and this week was the 67th primetime emmy awards and game of thrones won everything it it was uh, the biggest winner, wasn't it? Twelve awards it won, which apparently, according to this BBC news article I've got in front of me, is the most any series has won in a single year. Which that's incredible. It's three more than The West Wing won. So that's that that is a lot. That's heavy. It is not as good as The West Wing. Um. Well, I suppose that's debatable because Game of Thrones has a huge fan base. It is a massive series uh, in terms of its budget. Like we just talked about the films with those, those big budgets, but in terms of its budget, it's pretty big. And also uh, the amount of people who seem to love it. I mean, absolutely love Game of Thrones. He's never phenomenal. he's never finishing the next book, though, is he? No. Let's face it, he's gonna kill over before he he's gets. He's too out. busy doing cameos and Sharknado. <laughs> yeah, he's got another Sharknado film to to get ready for. Um, but I mean, it's kind of that the awards themselves. We did that preview podcast. Well, I did a preview podcast with um, Matt Latham and uh, and James Diamond. We brought James back for that one. And what we kind of found was a lot of the films that had been nominated, uh, films, a lot of the TV shows that had been nominated weren't really that big over here because in a lot of cases we hadn't seen them at all any episode of any of them um which does kind of make it very hard to do a preview show on the emmys when you you, most of them aren't out in the uk but at the same time you know i think there were some some positive things to come out of the awards this year so um one of the one of the big things that that came out of it was uh 
what happened with Viola Davis, who was the first black woman to win Best Actress in a drama series, which seems incredible in 2015. And that's the first time uh, uh, an African-American lady has won Best Actress. You know, I suppose it opens up a big discussion on a have black women been neglected for big roles or have there been plenty of, of black women in big roles and they've just not been good enough to win an Emmy? I don't know. I don't watch enough American television, so I wouldn't be able to say, but I suppose it's a, a discussion. Well, I suppose it, a... It, yeah, it's one of those where, um, I mean, in her uh, acceptance speech, she said you cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. So I think that kind of gives you a hint to her insight yeah. on the problem. You know, if those roles haven't been written for for black actresses in you know, good TV shows, then it's not really that much of a surprise that uh, that one hasn't won no. before. But Are you seriously moment, telling me that Sister Sister never won an Emmy? I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. It might yeah, have won a Teen Choice Award, though. Oh, probably yeah. did, yeah. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so... Appar- apparently, while we're on Sister Sister, apparently Nickelodeon are making their own channel uh, in the UK that is just showing 90s kids' TV like Sister Sister and Keenan and Cow and Hey Arnold. Wow. Almost enough to make me subscribe to Sky. Yeah. Keenan and Cow would sell it for me. I used to love Keenan and Cow. You just liked it because, uh, is it Keenan's dad was... Kevin Foray. In Dawn yeah. of the Dead. Yeah, that's, that's true. But that wasn't something I knew at the time. Uh, <laughs> but, it, yeah, I mean... Um, Onto sort of the other winners at the the Emmys because uh, there's quite a few. We won't talk about all of them because, like I said, most of them we aren't all that aware of. But it, it's worth picking up on on a few of them. Outstanding comedy series went to Veep, uh, which was Amanda Iannucci's show, uh, starring um, Julia Louis Dreyfus, who won an award for outstanding lead lead actress in a comedy series which is pretty big news as well. So that sort of swept up a, a few awards. I mean, I, I really loved The Thick of It. I thought The, the, the Thick of It was just absolutely outstanding uh, British satire. Veep is... I watched the first season. and I mean, have you guys seen Veep? Have you no. watched any of it? No. No. Okay. So it, it kind of has a, that the thick of it kind of flavour to it, but I found it very sanitised in comparison. I think what it lacks, what it lacks is... Um, Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi. Malcolm yeah. Tucker, just yeah. swearing his way through the show. Exactly. He was he was just utterly sublime in the thick of it. And, the, and Veep doesn't really have that kind of character to it, which I guess in some ways makes it more focused on the satire. It has to be more clever with its satire. So it's got, a, you know, it's obviously got an audience because it's it's very popular. But um, it it beats some some stiff competition as well. Parks and Rec lost out to it. Um, Transparent lost out to it, but instead Transparent's uh, Jeffrey Tambor won Outstanding Lead Actor in a comedy series. We had Outstanding Variety Talk series, which normally I wouldn't be bothered about in the slightest. But I was gutted to see last week tonight with John Oliver missed out, but not at all surprised to see Daily Show. One with John Stewart, yeah, you know that's kind of uh, that was one that was a shoe in, wasn't it? It's a banker, isn't it? That one really? Yeah, exactly, exactly. He's yeah, I, I couldn't see John Oliver beating as much as well. Yeah, I've seen a few of the, the John Oliver show, 
mainly the FIFA ones, but a couple of them was around that as well, and mm-hmm. they are excellent. I've not really seen any of the Daily Show. Last week tonight makes me really kind of angry that the UK doesn't have an equivalent. You know, what we have in the UK is something like, have I got news for you? And, and, we've, export, and we've exported the one guy who does it. And we've exported John Oliver to America and where you, he's been a huge uh, success. Have you ever looked back and seen him when he's on Mock the Week? Yeah, I can remember just, him when he was on it. And it's just like, when you're watching on Mock the Week, like, actually, who is this person? I'm not, like, when you watch it the yeah. first time, before you're like, thinking, well, who is this? I know all these other comedians. I don't know who he is. And now he's like, Far better and more successful than any of them. Yeah, well, he sort of found his market in America, where yeah. he's apparently a very good presenter and not particularly great as the boisterous kind of, uh, you know, comedian who has to fit into something like the panel shows we get over here. He's you know? better. He's funnier than fucking Russell Howard. He's yeah, <laughs> definitely. He's a very funny guy. I've listened to a few of his podcasts with Andy Zoltman, mm. uh, the Bugle, Daily Bugle. Or, oh, that's not Daily Bugle. That's from fucking Spider Man, isn't it? It's from the Bugle, and <laughs> you know he he naturally is a very funny bloke, and I'm really pleased to see him do well. But you're right when I was, when I saw him on stuff like Mock of the Week at, way back when, I didn't think much of him. I didn't really like him then. And maybe that was because he just didn't fit into that style. But as the presenter of last week tonight, it's just superb. Um, I am really glad he's doing well. But um, maybe next year he'll win Extending Variety Talk Series. Yeah. Uh, we also had Extending Variety Sketch Series, which went to Inside Amy Schumer, who has, like, in the past six months, skyrocketed in popularity. I mean, she's just all over the place now. I must admit, I really, really like Amy Schumer. I think she's hilarious, and it's so, so cutting edge as well. Like very borderline offensive, but mm. she gets away with it because she's just a sweet-looking girl. But yeah, she's got a massive future ahead of her. So when I like yeah. watching a, a show on Monday nights on Comedy Central. Yeah, she's she's a star in the making, if not so already. Yeah. So outstanding lead actor in a drama series we haven't mentioned yet was uh, John Hamm as Don Draper for Mad Men, which is apparently the first time he's actually won it. Mm, which which, which is, hasn't Mad Men just finished as well? Yeah. So, so it, it makes you just... kind of think it's like when Giggs won Sports Personality of the Year. It's, like kind <laughs> of, it's kind of like, well, that's his, that's his last bit now. He might not have actually been the best one this year, but overall, considering he's not won it before, he should really win it for Mad Men in general. Yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know, because lots of people think that he deserved it. Which... Sorry to piss on your parade, John. <laughs> yeah, let's piss on his chips, but I'm sure he'll get over it. His um, fries. Or his fries, if you like. It's yeah. not his fries. Yeah, I really wanted to see Bob Odenkirk win for uh, Jimmy McGill in Better Call Saul. Mm. I thought that was one of the best shows to come out this year. I've still not finished watching this season, but what I have seen of it, it was very good. He was, he was brilliant, isn't it? It's so well written and so well performed. His character, mm. it's yeah. Um, but you maybe you're right. Maybe just John Hamm was given it because it's the last chance to, for for Mad Men, which has been such a huge success. Anything that you guys have seen in any of the other categories that have caught your your eye or nothing that really stands out just a kind of runaway success of, of game of thrones which uh, hasn't wasn't really his, its best series yeah i agreed with that I, i'm probably the biggest game of thrones fan on the podcast and 
I've been riveted by it, particularly seasons one to three were all exceptional. Four started to lose its way a little bit, but it was still very good. And this one just didn't get going until the last couple of episodes, and then it was truly brilliant. But it wasn't enough overall. It's, it's left me unexcited about the next series for the first time out of all of them. So how it's done quite as well as it has done, I think, is a little bit disingenuous. But mm. It is strange. I mean, like you said, it had a strong finish, but it took ages for it to get good, didn't it? Yeah, I think I think you can tell they're sort of treading into the ground now whereby they're having to make up certain bits of it as they go along because the source material isn't there anymore mm. or they're getting mm. towards I mean, the sure, end of I'm, it. I'm sure, I mean, allegedly he's got quite a, the, the book written. Um, so, I mean, obviously he can advise them on what he's going to do, what his, his plan is for the book. But then you're going to get start getting to a point where is he actually even going to get onto the next book? And if he doesn't actually get onto a next book, it's taken him so long to write this one. Then they're going to kind of have to make up what goes on. They're going to have to take it their own direction. The TV show they can't follow the outline of the book uh, or books. And they just have to go their own way with it. Well, that might be a good thing because um, it's a bit like The Walking Dead, isn't it? Where that's now veered off from the comics quite drastically by this point. Certain characters are alive that aren't in the the comics. The story is going in a different way. Different things are happening. So the the general direction of The Walking Dead is the same as the comics, but like you said, there is quite a lot different. It's yeah. Well, it's kind of. I I don't know if the direction is the same now. They seem to be treading a very different path. Um, Not just in terms of like what's happening in the plot, but I think the the point of the story is is quite different now. Whereas The Walking Dead is a co- the the comic is just a constant drudgery of you know being beaten over the head with more and more miserable episodes and you've got more th- things happening to the characters that just get darker and darker and the, the comic has gone fucking mental. Like it's that. just gone nuts. It, I think just, what happened with the comic is it got stupid. too big. Yeah, it went very stupid. It was a, it stretched itself to the point it was so over ambitious. It's still fun though, but it's, but it's fun it's and it's dumb. It, it's clawing its way back to a more grounded reality now, which is what made The Walking Dead so popular in the first place, is, uh, you know, what would happen to a normal group of people in a normal... Uh, well, and I say normal, it's not normal, but, you know, a normal group of people in a world that has been overrun by zombies, whereas it it just went bonkers in the comic. The TV series has not gone quite to that level. I think they're they're trying to keep it still at a very but they have steady. they have teased the major bad guy from the comics yeah um so anyway back to the Emmys I suppose but the Emmys, there, yeah back to the if Emmys. there is anything more from the Emmys that we can um no I, I think we've we've pretty much covered all that that I wanted to talk about so unless you guys have got anything I think it's the perfect point to move on yes um it is. <laughs> In what we've been watching, we're going to review some films we've seen over the last seven days. Uh, Matt, you're going to start us off because you've seen Street Fighter 2. Yeah, I haven't been to the cinema for the last couple of weeks because there's not been an enormous amount of interesting stuff come to the Isle of Man. So I've been digging through the old DVD collection and I did an article for the Failed Critics website on Street Fighter 2, the animated movie, as part of my Adultimation series. And Street Fighter 2, the animated movie, is one of my favourite animes of all time. Um, strikes a chord with me as a fan of anime, as well as 
the video game. So it's like the perfect storm to a sort of geeky teenager in terms of what would you most like to see done properly. And even though I'm a fan of Street Fighter, the movie, from the perspective that it's so bad that it's really good fun to watch, it's not the, the actual Street Fighter movie that fans of the game really wanted to see, which is where um, the anime really delivers. It's much more closer to the source material and faithful to the history of the game than the live-action movie ever was. I know when you've seen this one before, how excited were you back as a kid when this came out for the first time? It was yeah, such a big deal. It was it was huge. As soon as it was available um, for me to watch in the UK, I was I was onto it. I remember being very excited. Um, I mean, I didn't have a SNES. I'll just put that out there. I didn't have a SNES when I was a kid, but my friends did. So the first Street Fighter I owned was a Street Fighter Alpha game, which was on the PlayStation. Right. Um, which was slightly different um, to the original. But at the same time, I was, of course, aware of Street Fighter. I loved playing Street Fighter. But I was a Mortal Kombat kid rather than Street Fighter. I'll put that's, that out there. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a bit. But yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the Street Fighter 2, the animated movie, at the time, I thought it was, it was everything that it should be. It, was, it had absolutely fantastic uh, fight scenes. The animation was, was brilliant. It got the look and the sound of the characters spot on from what I remembered. And I th- when you're sort of that age... It's got Chun Li's breasts. I mean, what else would a film like that yes, need yes, to entertain? Although in more modern releases, if you're a big fan of this and you're looking to get hold of the recently released Blu-ray, there's got a lot of um, colourful language, and the Chun Li scene is taken out of it. Which I mean, <laughs> it's not a it's not a big deal, but if you're nostalgic yeah. about the original. You don't want anything taken out, even if it is just two seconds of Chun-Li's booze bouncing up and down in the shower. I was going to say, I mean, there's a point where when I was younger, that was brilliant. Because, you know, when you're sort of 12, 13 years old and you see that, you think, oh, this is, this is excellent. But watching it now, it just completely devalues her character as nothing more than this thing to be wanked over. And it's a shame because... It's... Is that an omission, then? <laughs> that's, that's not so much as an omission as... um how shall I put it, an observation, to put it diplomatically. But, you know, back back then it was brilliant. Back Watching it again now, because I also watched it in the past week after reading your, your article on the website, I, I think it, it's a shame that they had to put that in the film to appeal to the people like me when I was 12, because it, it, it ruins her character a little bit. And then she's running around fighting Vega. I mean, what is one of the best fight scenes in the entire movie, where it's all inside her flat? Uh, of her apartment and it's just it it's so crisp the animation in that and they get all of the sound effects like i think that's one of the things i underestimated about it when i was a kid um was that the the sound is just superb do you not think that sort of adds though to how sinister that particular scene is at least the build up to that particular fight whereby you have somebody who's thinks she's alone in her apartment she's just chilling out listening to some in the nursery on a stereo which is yeah from the, the awesome soundtrack. And then you realise throughout that whole thing, we've seen her making a show, but so has Vega, probably. And then he pounces on her yeah, to try and assassinate do... her. And then you have this incredible fight scene, which is particularly brutal as far as that movie goes, because it's one of the, the more bloody uh, fight scenes in the film. And Yeah. 
you, it's, it's a good point because it is a it is a brilliant fight scene, and you, you're absolutely right. It shows sort of Chun Li's at a vulnerable position, which is why Vega can take her by surprise and and all that. But I think you could probably do the same thing without quite so many crotch shots. You know? No, I get it. I mean, it is gratuitous. We're not going to like try and excuse it for what it is, but I do think it it did add a little something in there that yeah, a girl maybe. maybe who thinks she's home on her own. It is never more vulnerable than she actually was in that particular position, especially in the face of a stone cold killer like Vega. But mm-hmm. that, that that aside, like you said, the the animation and the, the choreography in the fight scenes, which were actually done by a couple of guys out of the um, Japanese fighting um, association called K One, which is like professional kickboxing. Mm-hmm. So it actually has some very high pedigree choreography put into it it's not just um animators doodling away maniacally coming up with these crazy scenes it's actually built to be semi-realistic mm-hmm. which it is and it comes across in the fight scenes there's a lot of like chokehold and joint manipulation and there as well as just face pounding brutality so it actually does a really good job of simulating fighting in in the movie as well as the the fantasy aspect, which is all the signature moves which go into the film, which all of the characters pretty much get all of their signature moves into this movie, which was one of the things that was completely lacking from Street Fighter, the movie, because I, yeah. they were so determined to try and get everyone in there that left almost none of them apart from Cammy and Guile and and Bison played by Raul Julia, any sort of extended face time, never mind an opportunity to actually fight each other. Yeah, it's... I mean, that's, that's that's part of the influence of um, Capcom, who told them to they have to keep putting in all these characters. Because one of the problems with these kinds of movies is when there's too many characters, there's not enough development going on because you're constantly introduced to new people. Whereas that's what this film does really well, is A, instead of focusing on... Guile and Cammy. It focuses on the two characters that every bloody Street Fighter fan likes most, which is Ryu and Ken. Yeah, absolutely. And they, that's the that's the most basic thing that it gets right. Yeah, and one of the the nice things about Street Fighter animated movie is it builds a very strong backstory, which is uh, illustrated by the flashbacks that Ryu and Ken keep having of one another, which is essentially what built Street Fighter Alpha, which was the first Street Fighter game that you mm-hmm. you played that particular series is largely based on the scenes in Street Fighter the animated movie where you see Ryu and Ken in their youth where you see in Street Fighter Alpha Ken has his really really long hair like he does in the flashbacks of this film so it's nice how the animators of this which was a group tack out of Tokyo Japan really came together and synergized the promotion and the story and the lore of this movie very closely to that of the Street Fighter games, and I think that's how they come across so well. There's never really been a game and movie tie-in that's so well suited to each other as Street Fighter the animated movie has. I mean, I know Brooke is a big fan of, of Hitman, mm-hmm. and there's been some half-decent efforts at, at films of that fan base, but realistically they don't come close to how good of a job this film does in relation to appeasing the fan base. And I think it still holds up pretty well today, to be honest. I really enjoyed re-watching this. And, you know, it's not quite as spectacular as it was in the mid-90s, 
but I still really enjoy it, and it's still probably my favourite movie and game tie-in of all time. I think that um, a lot of what you said is is true for me as well. It's still held. In fact, I was half expecting it to be a, a bit shit, but it, I think it held up really well, mainly because of how well put together it is, and it definitely gave me that nostalgic feeling of playing Street Fighter again, which was primarily why why I wanted to watch it, I suppose. But um, I think what what lets it down for me is the the story. There's a couple of things. A, the story drops off a cliff halfway through. I mean, it just it, it should have been wrapped up much sooner. But the other thing that lets it down for me is that they have to put so much into it that the story is stretched out to that point, particularly in the last half, where they have to keep putting in all these these different characters. And the whole thing with E. Honda was... I'm not quite sure why he was given that bigger role, to be honest, because he seemed so unimportant. And there's loads of other stuff they do with the characters. I don't want to talk about everything in it because I think a lot of people who would have wanted to see Street Fighter 2 would have seen it by now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, uh, your, your, your review kind of convinced me to give it another go and I'm glad I did because I, I still, I thought, it, I thought it was much better than I was expecting it to be, in all honesty. Okay. And Owen, continuing on the same theme, you've seen... Uh, um... Couple of Mortal Kombat films as well. I've you? seen, yeah, I've seen the two Mortal Kombat films that, um, well, Mortal Kombat from 1995, so that was the year after Street Fighter 2. And then later on in the week, I thought, you know what? The first Mortal Kombat is a, is a good film. I'm, I will defend that film because I think that it, a lot about it is right. Okay, I'll come on to that in a minute. So I thought what I would also do is give Mortal Kombat Annihilation another <laughs> go, <Oops>. because I <laughs> because I used to think that was one of the worst films ever made, and I thought, well, if the first film is still so good, maybe Annihilation w- will be slightly. Be- no, uh, no, uh, just uh, to put this out there straight away, uh, Mortal Kombat Annihilation is one of the worst films I've seen. It is absolutely terrible in every single aspect from the way it looks to the the story which i don't think it's really got a story somewhere. well maybe no that is that's not true it does have a story but it's so shit what what's good about the first mortal kombat film is there's a story they kind of acknowledge that really it's it's a bit of guff it's there to to help along um, all these characters and their fight scenes. That's what you're supposed to be interested in. And they're aware of that. Paul W.S. Anderson, the director, is aware that all people are watching Mortal Kombat for is to see the characters they like, the characters they know, engaged in some kind of plot, but also have really strong visuals on all of their fight scenes. And I think Paul W.S. Anderson delivers in that aspect. In Mortal Kombat Annihilation, for some unfathomable reason, the director, John R. Leonetti, thinks, no, okay, what's meant to happen is they're supposed to develop the story. And people don't really care so much about the fight scenes. What we'll do is we'll just put a load of new characters in. And we'll just kind of kill off some of the other ones who we don't know what to do with. So you get Johnny Cage, who's killed off in the first minute. Who's played by a different actor. They couldn't get the same guy back. So I think rather than just continue with him and um, Sonya's relationship, they just go, ah, no, we'll just kill him off. It's fine. So then they introduce all these other characters who you expect to play a big part who do nothing but bicker 
I mean, it's just a waste of time. And then when they get to to, to sort of have their big fight scenes, their big moments. So uh, you, you've got in there. Um, I don't know if anyone's kind of aware of uh, the characters in Mortal Kombat, but you've got a, a character called Shiva, who's this a dreadful character, just dreadful. But she's got four arms. She's meant to to kind of mimic from from the first film that the big bad in, in that was um, Goro. Goro, who was he looks brilliant still. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the effects on that, the practical effects on him are just brilliant. So Shiva's this film's Goro, and she's she's awful. She's in, she's in it for about two minutes in total. That includes her appearance, her bickering with other characters, and then her death scene. I mean, it's just stupid. Shao Kahn in it is is awful as well, played by Brian Thompson. Who's I was going to say that's one of the best things in it, not one of the worst things. Because oh my god, he's he's the so... alien bounty hunter in Exiles, and he's also one of the the punks at the beginning of the Terminator, Terminator. gets killed. I yeah. love that guy. He pops up in everything. I no, don't get me. I love him too. I think he's brilliant. But in this, as Shao Kahn, he's in a completely different movie to everybody else, which you can't blame him for wanting to be, I suppose, because it's such a such an awful film. But I don't know, he just seems like, even in the bits where they're supposed to be... There are moments that are slightly more mellow, which are left to, to characters to um, to emote certain things. And he just goes completely overboard with all of it. Choose the scenery. But not in a good way, not in an entertaining way. It's just in an, oh my god, this is so embarrassing for everyone involved sort of way. But So yeah, it's like completely the opposite to the first Mortal Kombat. As I say, the first one, I mean, are you guys Mortal Kombat fans at all? I was up until around this point, like the first two or three Mortal Kombat games were all like really well received and, and great. And then it started to get a little bit silly. Um, mm-hmm. I really like the first Mortal Kombat. And I, I don't mind this one too much. I mean, it's definitely inferior. I think the biggest problem it had is... Let's say if the biggest success of the first Mortal Kombat is how well it was cast, say, compared to Street yes. Fighter the movie, <laughs> you had someone as, as good as Christopher Lambert mm-hmm. as, as Raiden, mm-hmm. and then they change him for, I can't remember the guy's name, in, in Annihilation, but it's the quality of the casting starts to slip and therefore the whole grounding of the, the second movie begins to slip too. But one yeah. thing I really do like about Mortal Kombat Annihilation, and it's not really in its strength as a film, and it does have a really, really awesome soundtrack. Yeah, but that's the other thing. I mean, the soundtrack, what you what you kind of remember as being the best thing about it is hardly used. It's kind of a lot of the soundtrack seems like terrible stock soundtrack that's just been taken off a random bargain bin 90s clubbing soundtrack. And it was bizarre because I also remember the soundtrack being great for the Mortal Kombat Annihilation, but it's 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 underused if anything. It's still maybe good. not not in terms of how it's used in the film, but the actual okay. So listings, yeah, yeah. Like if you say look at a number of the artists that are on that soundtrack, they all a lot of them turn up again on stuff like the Matrix soundtrack, which was mm-hmm. considered quite cutting edge, but this beat it by several years, I think. Yeah. So it was being ambitious and sort of cutting edge in that respect, but ultimately it's it's a bit of a failed experiment, and yeah, it's perhaps one of the I think one of the biggest contributing factors to the decline of Mortal Kombat as a franchise for quite a number of years. Oh, it I set think, it back a lot. Yeah. Yeah, massively. Whereas it was 
the first Mortal Kombat did pretty well and people were expecting bigger and better and, and it just didn't quite deliver and then wasn't mm. too long after that the series really started to fall away from itself. Yeah. Well the first the first Mortal Kombat film was made for eighteen million dollars and grossed seventy million. So that's that's huge. And that would have been off the back of the reputation of the the film itself. The budget for Mortal Kombat Annihilation was nearly twice as much. It was thirty million, even though it looks like it's been made out of pocket change. And the opening weekend, it made sixteen million. So it didn't really do as well. People weren't coming back in their droves to see it. Uh, but it it would cost twice as much to make. And I don't understand how or why, because it's a complete failure. It's a complete and utter shambles of a film. I think they spent it on Robin shows. Uh... Yeah, maybe <laughs> on his uh, <laughs> on his baby oil or something. Like that. <laughs> But he's another one who kind of disappeared, didn't he? I mean, I don't know what happened to Robin Show. I thought he was good. I, I be... think he's probably just too tight cast as uh, Liu Kang to continue, quite frankly. Yeah. yeah, maybe. But yeah, I mean, the performances in the first one, they're, they're okay. They're kind of, you, you do get the odd person, like, like you've mentioned, with uh, Christopher Lambert, who shows up and is, is great as Raiden. He's got a bit of a cheeky smile and a bit of humour about him. Whereas you get in, in the Annihilation, you've got James Remmer, who is um, probably most known as Dexter's dad in the TV series, Dexter. Uh, but he's just lost the charm. He's so boring. It's hard to put into words, but you, you know the performances. Like I said, that's for the most part are kind of so-so mm. with the first film. But despite all of that, still made decent money. I mean, it made decent it. money. Yeah, it so, it had a decent enough story with a couple of twists in it to keep you from from getting too bored. But mainly, it was the fantastic soundtrack for that film. I love the Mortal Kombat um, soundtrack, as we, we sort of mentioned, but also. Um, I think Paul W.S. Anderson's directions, it's good. I think it, 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 in lesser hands, it would have been a, a terrible film. But I think he gets a lot of the visual style right. And that's what, what, what keeps it still looking quite good and, uh, and is entertaining now. Um, so, yeah, so my, my reactions for these couple of uh, video game adaptations that I've watched this week are... Mostly the ones I thought were good were still good, and the ones I thought were terrible were still terrible. That's okay. kind of the conclusion I've come to. It's probably a good time to actually bring Mortal Kombat back because the games went quiet for a number of years. Mortal yeah. Kombat X has come back and has been almost as big as the first Mortal Kombat was. So if there, if this was ever going to get rebooted, now is the time to do it. So who knows? Anyway, um, on to our final review then in what we've been watching. Usually go in new releases that we're doing triple bill, so it's in here, and that is Everest, starring everyone, starring <laughs> Jason Clark, Josh Brolin, Emily Watson, Kieran Knightley, Sam Worms, and Jake Gyllenhaal, and others, and is obviously, as you can guess by the title, a docudrama about a load of double glazing salesmen. Very good. I knew yeah. that was coming. Yeah, I was waiting to see when you were going to sneak that in there. Yeah, I've got it out of the way now. No, it's obviously a, a, a disaster movie based on real events about a climb to the summit of Mount Everest. Yeah. First question I've got to ask you, Steve. Did you watch it in 2D or 3D? 2D. I ain't paying extra for 3D unless the film specifically made it in for 3D. 
Yeah, I watched it in two D as well. But I've heard. I just, I just felt. I just find a lot of films that are retrofitted for three D don't work that well. But the few films that I have seen have been specifically made for three D. It really works. I think the only couple I've actually seen or can think of seeing are Avatar, which is kind of the first major one, and then Gravity. Um, mm-hmm. And anything else that I've seen that has been major 2D and then had a 3D bit tagged on, it just doesn't work for me. I've seen some good films in 3D, and I'm never really sure any... Well, I say I'm never really sure. Sometimes it's just blatantly obvious. But, you know, sometimes I, I'm not sure whether it's been made for 3D specifically or whether it was tacked on. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, anyway, Everest apparently is supposed to be all right in 3D. So I hear. But I okay. too, I too went for the the 2D um, showing mainly because I just can't be asked. It, it it seemed like if it was going to be good enough, then it had to be good enough in 2D. Two dimensions yeah. are more than enough for me. Precisely. Who needs who needs a third dimension? Who needs a fourth? Just 3D. The... Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Everest. Um, I thought for the first hour of the film, because it's two hours, which is one of the things I, I was aware of going in, and I was also aware that it was going to be kind of slow, and it was. The first hour of this film dragged. It was a, it, a it's, real... It's not like... It's obviously a disaster movie, but it's not a disaster in the movie, movie in the same way San Andreas or mm-hmm. The Day After Tomorrow or Armageddon is, is it? No, that's right, yeah. It's not just a, a constant barrage of set pieces this yeah. goes wrong they just escape this goes wrong they just escape but someone dies this goes wrong and they're all fine at the end of the movie there's an american flag and the rock looking on telling us we need to rebuild yeah exactly there's none of that going on really um but what what you do have is a lot of emphasis on the characters that are involved in this expedition so some of the people with you mentioned in the intro though you've got jason clark who heads up the group as rob hall and then you've got part of his group People like uh, Josh Brolin plays character who who's on this this expedition. Uh, John Hawks is there. Um, Michael Kelly's involved. You've got other people as as well. Like you've already said, Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays a kind of not a rival mountaineer, but a person who is at the same base camp in 1994 where they they, they go on this disastrous climb. Um, but I thought it was really slow, and I know why it was being slow. I know the point was to build these characters, to make you care about them, so that by the time something possibly might happen to a couple of them or more, that you, you, you're you going to be bothered that whatever happens has happened. But it just took so long to get there. It just took so long. By the time they got to the, the, the top of the mountain, or whoever it was that got to the top of the mountain, I just thought... You know what? This this feels like the film's almost over. How much longer have they got? Because they've got to get back down yet. Yeah? Where's the disaster? And I had to look at sort of the time, and I thought there's still another hour to go. There's still another hour's worth of film left, um, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it was going to take that long. But the flip side of that is, for the next hour, I was riveted, and I thought it was really emotional, and it took me by surprise a little bit. It, it did. It did do that well, and like I say, I think the first half does drag, but when the the, the characters, without giving up too much away, because obviously Matt hasn't seen it, he's planning yeah. to, and others would be the same. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, when the characters start having to make decisions, it is, it, you know, that's where it comes into the to, mm-hmm. the to the fore, but it doesn't really happen 
that early in the film. No, no, that's right. Because it, like I said, it does try to develop these guys to a point where you're going to be interested in them. But it doesn't do enough of that for me. I don't think it's that interesting. But it has enough time to do it. It just does. Yeah, it has enough time, but it just doesn't. It just doesn't establish it very well. Um, and I read an interview with um, the director, uh, whose name is just suddenly escaped me. Uh, I mean, yeah, I read an interview with the Bal- director, Balthazar Comacore. Comacore, yeah. And he basically made the point that because they're based on real people, what he didn't want to do was put a load of phony uh, epiphanies happening left, right and centre. Characters are sort of staring ponderously out into the, the mountain wilderness and having these deep, complex thoughts because it... Having a Yeti rock up in the background. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no Yetis. Spoiler. Um, but, you know... In, he... this, in this film, we don't know about... In, in real life. We kind of do. Attenborough said it's possible. Well, he's a senile old man. Um, <laughs> but the the thing is, I don't think that that he's he, that he's wrong, Balthazar Comacall, that is not, not Attenborough. But I don't think that it, putting all of this fake, really cheesy, sympathetic stuff in there would have been the right thing to do. But at the same time, he, what he tries to do is pay too much tribute to these guys. He tries to give everyone a bit of screen time. And in doing so, it's the same thing we talked about with Street Fighter. It's the same thing we talked about with uh, Mortal Kombat, which is odd to make the comparison. But it's the same thing where you've got so many characters that it's not enough development happens with enough of them. If you'd have just focused more on just, say, two or three, if you'd have just really put the focus mainly on Jason Clark, who does get developed. I think he is a very, he's a very well-rounded character in this. But a bit more on Josh Brolin, um, a bit more on uh, Doug, the guy who, who I said was played by John Hawks, uh, would have been more interesting. I was quite interested in that character's background, why he was there, which is only very sort of alluded to in a snippet of the film. Um, and then maybe focused a bit more on his wife, uh, on Rob Hall's wife, who's played by Keira Knightley. Who I still think, as accent aside, dodgy accent aside, it, it, she she was good in this. I like Keira Knightley. I think she's she's showed in a few films lately that she can she can act quite well. But uh, you know, I would that's what I would have done. It's not what the director did. I can't really criticise it for being something I would have made instead. It's particularly when he's a professional filmmaker and I'm just an idiot who sits here on a podcast moaning about films. But um, I thought it, it stretched each character too thinly. For the first time, yeah, uh, it looked fantastic though. Oh, it was gorgeous, wasn't it? Yeah, some of the scenery. Some, Apparently, yeah. they actually went up to that um, Camp One and were there and filmed a lot of stuff actually on Mount Everest. But yeah, it look, it looked, it looked stunning. So um, it did. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not a bad film by any means. It's certainly worth watching. It's certainly worse ways to kill two hours. Yeah, particularly because that that second hour is what makes it worth. Worth yeah, journey, so to speak, um, it may it makes everything kind of the first hour was a bit of a trudge, but the the second hour is it is good. It's it's really well shot. It really drags you into the the story and the mm. characters, and you want people to succeed, and um, you don't want certain things to happen to certain people. It's, I'm trying to be as spoiler free as possible, <laughs> but you know it's kind of it. It's very yeah. I think I said before it's emotional. It, yeah. It, it was the first film I've seen for absolutely ages where I was actually in the public. It was in the cinema and sort of 
got a bit of, got a bit teary, I think, which is doesn't happen very often, but it, it did. It got to me a little bit. Triple Bill then, a long-awaited return to Triple Bill for us. And this week it is our favourite three films with a budget of $1 million or less uh, at the time of the film being made, because we can't be bothered to do what Owen did with the quiz and work out inflation and things. Um, (laughs) Owen, why are we doing this? Um, It's mainly because we hope to, in the near future, announce uh, an exciting podcast project spin-off. Series. A project. If you like. Yeah, why not? I do. Yeah, sure. A, a prodcast. Um, no, that pod, sounds a bit pod, rapey. Project. Um, uh, a prodcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, basically, the, the, the idea of this, this project is that um, it'll be looking specifically at cult classics and uh, modern indie films and kind of those films that may have slipped under the radar a little bit. Um, and it's hopefully going to have Paul Field and James Mullinger. And people might remember James as the comedian that we got into to, to work on uh, the Corridor of Praise episode with Danny Dyer. So it, it, if it gets off the ground, it'll be those two. But because they're going to be looking at these cool classics, these B-movies, these indies, we thought, well, this week's Triple Bill then can be films of a, a similar ilk, sort of $1 million or less, I thought seemed fair enough. Um, there's plenty of films out there that have been made for less than a million dollars that are still still really good. That's that's the reason that we're doing it. So who who's going first then, Steve? I, who will, you got first? I will go first. Okay. And I'll go in order of, of money spent on the budget. First up is Paranormal Activity, made for a budget, according to Wikipedia, of fifteen thousand dollars. Um, That's got to be one of the most profitable films ever. Made $193.4 million at the box office. Wow. So that is pure money in the bank. Spawned, obviously, about five sequels, uh, a whole series of films which continue in its success, and probably gave the found footage genre a shot in the arm. I mean, I think they've obviously been Cannibal Holocaust way back when, and Blair Witch Project in the 90s, but then this really kind of really shot found footage in the arm and we've now got so many found footage horror films it's, it's kind of a genre in itself it is yeah it's an entire subgenre now and um which is weird because it's more of a technique than a genre um mm. uh but i think uh, paranormal activity done what it did really well it was kind of, obviously for those who don't know a, a, a ghost film or a entity film where a family are being haunted or, or house possessed or whatever by some kind of spirit or demon and and it's it, i think james you say when he was on there it's one of those films that make you run up the stairs quicker when you turn the light off or you know it's it has that effect on you whereas a lot of horror films don't kind of leave that lasting effect of, of being scared and they're kind of all about jump scares rather than kind of some lingering atmosphere of, of it's one of those horror. ones that instills paranoia into yeah you. yeah yeah, because you don't you don't really see what's causing the paranormal activity, and it is such a long and slow build up to anything big happening that it builds the suspense really well. Just be a, something little happen, 
something oh, small it's incredibly yeah. incredibly tense if you watch it with the right audience in the cinema. It's, or, what, it's or, watch it, or watch it on your own in the dark. Uh, never do that. <laughs> too much of a pussy. Next on my list is Mad Max. Boo. <laughs> okay. Is that one that you picked, Matt? No, no. Um, I did a, a little bit on the first two Mad Max films a few weeks ago, and I really didn't get on with the first one. Uh, but in terms made, of profitability, absolutely. Yes, made for somewhere between three hundred and fifty thousand and four hundred thousand dollar <laughs> and made a hundred million at the US at the hundred million at the box office total. Um, Obviously, post-apocalyptic film in Australia with Mel Gibson playing Mad Max, just going round, kicking ass, and has now spawned a, a very successful sequel, possibly prequel, we're not quite sure, I don't think, starring Tom Hardy as Max. Um, the original didn't have a, a man on a car playing a flaming guitar, but it was it was entertain- <laughs> it was entertaining enough without it. Yeah, I can't. I, I've given it two watches now. I've tried it twice. I, I'm, I'm kind of with math. I can't really get into the original Mad Max as much as I want to, um, because I still, I think there's probably a good concept in there. I'm just not sure what the hell the concept is because it's not really post-apocalyptic. It's not really like um, a crime thriller. But I don't really know what it is, and I can't. Yeah. I've tried. I just, I didn't get on board with it, but. Fury Road is spectacular. Uh, Fury Road. Just, even, just, a, even in the name, you know, it's more like slightly peed off Max than Max. Yeah. <laughs> Upset Max. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, final film, and it's just sneaking in here. I'm assuming they rounded up the budget because it's Rocky, which was made for a budget of $1 million. Just on our cusp, I'm guessing they rounded up to a million. It was like Trevor Francis transfer for a million pounds. <laughs> um, but yes, obviously, Rocky is... Uh, Sylvester Lone staying, playing boxer Rocky Balboa made on such a small budget made $225 million and went on to win an Oscar we just yeah. want to go the distance yeah can't really argue with any of that I don't need to explain Rocky to anyone no when did you guys first watch Rocky did you two see it when you were I there? reckon I, I watched them in reverse order I'm pretty sure I watched four oh, really before <laughs> the other ones <laughs> so God knows when they are. We've, got, we've got Creed coming out soon as well haven't we yeah, I'm not sure when the release date is for that. I thought it was December. Well, I had to look again a, a week or two ago, and it seems to be it's sort of possibly even um, next year now in the UK. I think we get it later than in America, which is yeah. annoying. Because, yeah, I don't know. It might be um, an Oscar contender, that one. Certainly for performance. Mm. Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yes, Owen, you're three... So, okay, I went down a route where I thought, because the, the inspiration for this is is based on those B-movies, I thought I'd pick three horrors, and it's easy to do in the horror genre is to find good films made for, for less than a million. But I thought I'm going to have to watch a couple of them first. Uh, like, re-watch them, I mean. Obviously, I'll watch them at some point, but to re-watch them. So today, I re-watched Dawn of the Dead. The original film by George A. Romero. And I know a million dollars goes a bit further back in 1978. But, I mean, I couldn't believe that it was it was made for just $650,000. I mean, I thought Dawn of the Dead was quite an expensive film. I always had it in my mind. It was a lot of money. So that was, that took me by surprise a little bit. But it's just the it's just so 
so brilliant. I, I, every aspect, every facet of the story of Dawn of the Dead, there's, there's so much going on. It's so clever in the way it's constructed everything. Um, whether you get, like, in the very beginning where um, we've already sort of mentioned Kevin Forey, but you also get Scott Reiniger, I can never remember how you pronounce his name, Scott Reiniger, I think, as Roger, or Flyboy, as they call him, the helicopter pilot, and you've got David Emger as um, Stephen, uh, and Galen Frost as, as Francine. They're your four main characters, and when they're just all together in the helicopters, it's just about to take off. And they end up at the shopping mall. Just before then, you get someone who walks up to them and asks if they if they've got a cigarette, and they all sort of say, "No, sorry, we've, yeah, we're all out of cigarettes." And then off they go, and just all of them take out a cigarette and light it up, as if to say, "Yeah, this is the beginning of the outbreak, but we're aware that things shit has gone down and things are never going to be the same. We're looking out for ourselves from now on," which I thought was just a really simple little touch. To the film and it really sets everything up because after that point they just become this close group of strangers who all met on the same day and also what happens is it, I don't, it wasn't ever planned to be the middle part of a trilogy but you're having Night of the Dead Night of the Living Dead you've got the outbreak Dawn of the Dead so Night of the Living Dead I guess you could say um, the reaction is what's happening in Dawn of the Dead you've got it's happening and in Day of the Dead, which is sort of the conclusion, you've got it's happened. So there's like these three stages of this outbreak, and I think it's just worked so so brilliantly into the into the story. Uh, and there's so much to it. It's just such a great idea to set it in a shopping mall. I mean, what a genius in, bit of inspiration that was to, to to set them in this this shopping mall, which was new at the time. I just think I, I could go on about it forever. Um, it's just one of my favourite films. It's almost a perfect, perfect horror film. There's nothing about it that I would, I would change or question. It's just fantastic. So what I also did, I watched um, a, a film called Bride of Reanimator, which is the sequel to Stuart Gordon's 1985 film Reanimator. Now, Bride of Reanimator wasn't made for uh, under a million dollars. It was quite expensive by comparison. But as I've since found out, Reanimator was made for $900,000, which also astonishes me because the amount of practical effects that are used in that, it just seems like it would be quite an expensive film to make, but it wasn't. Apparently it was it was 900000 pain in 1985. So that's really good. When you compare it to like Day of the Dead, as I mentioned, which came out in the same year, that was made for $2 million. It just goes to show that actually sometimes, you know, all of these practical effects they've put in, all of the, the writing, they get the comedy element of Reanimator fantastically well, uh, well crafted. I mean, Steve, you, I remember we had this conversation before, but just just reminded me, uh, remind me, do, do you like Reanimator? I can't remember if I've seen it, to be honest. Oh, okay, fair enough. I thought I thought you had. Uh, have you seen it, Matt? No, it's one of those ones where I can vividly recall seeing that the VHS cover in video shops time after time yeah. after time, <laughs> but never actually got around to, to watching. Okay. What what sort of sets it apart is the performance of Jeffrey Coombs as uh, as Herbert West, the mad doctor, almost a sort of Frankenstein character who's invented a way to give life to the dead. And it's based on a HP Lovecraft um, story. Um, so already, you know, there's going to be some kind of dark twist to it, but it, it, it's so 
well done. I just love Reanimator. I've watched it about three or four times now, and each time it's just been been brilliant. I will just say the sequel, Bride of Reanimator, is not quite as good, even though it was made for a lot more money. But yeah, Reanimator is still sort of a cult classic. Uh, and sort of fits our trouble. Then I thought, okay, so the first two films I'm gonna I'm gonna mention were made years ago, where it would have been much easier to stretch that money further. So what I need to do now is pick a recent one, and one that I've seen this year. Um, and I'm not gonna go over old ground because I have talked about it on the podcast already. Um, is Creep, which was released in the UK this year by Patrick Bryce. Um, which is kind of the story of a uh, videographer uh, who has someone respond to one of his adverts or he responds to an advert, sorry, for a guy who's tells him he's terminally ill and he invites uh, Patrick Bryce up to uh, his resort, his holiday resort, where he wants him to film aspects of his life to create a home video to give to his as yet unborn child so it's already kind of weird but the guy uh, the, the, the weird guy who's invited Patrick Bryce to, to his, his resort is played by Mark Duplass who um, is suddenly everywhere, he's so popular it's amazing to see him pop up in a little low budget horror like this, a little fan footage horror um, because you know most people probably recognise him from the league I think it was, was where he was, was quite big he was also uh, in Safety Not Guaranteed as well quite recently um so he's already he's you know he's quite a, a, a well-established actor and to, so to see him in something like this it, where he plays this creepy guy who's not really telling the truth all of the time uh i can't really say much more than that without without spoiling is one is one of the best performances of the year for me mark duplass in this film absolutely outstanding i thought he was so creepy so unnerving and I read recently that the way that the film was, was shot was uh, they were kind of not making it up as they went along, but they were filming the same thing in quite a few different ways. So like the way the ending of the film plays out, they had about 12 different ways that from the way they shot it that it could happen. And then they decided on one particular one, which I think was just, it's got a brilliant ending. The ending is superb. But it was just an interesting project that was put together, made for sort of peanuts. It's about 80 minutes long in total, but it's it's so deserving of a wider audience than it's got. It's it's a proper good use of fan footage horror. Uh, yeah, I, I loved it. Creep is is brilliant. It's not quite a slasher, but it's it. it I don't know how to describe it. Just a sort of horror drama thrillery type thing. It's brilliant. Okay, and uh, Matt. Okay, I'm going to go first choice, Napoleon Dynamite, <laughs> which is reportedly made for approximately $400,000, which quite astonished me because I thought it was a quite, uh, not particularly famous, but quite a strong cast, but uh, apparently it turned out quite cheap. Now, I didn't get on with Napoleon Dynamite the first time, so I thought it was a little bit too strange and I didn't quite get it. But then everyone was telling me, no, no, it's, it's like a, a modern classic, you've got to go back to it. And I watched it a second time and you know, I dropped whatever prejudices I'd built up the first time around. I watched it and really fell in love with it. Uh, the characters in it are a little bit silly, a little bit strange, very awkward. Uh, it's it's a film full of cringe moments, 
that I think most people who, who have seen it at least once or twice would agree that Napoleon Dynamite is a very funny, modern, but strange comedy. And yeah, if you can make a film that good for such a paltry sum of money in the modern age and you're doing something right. So yeah, really enjoy that one. Um, second one, I'm going gradually cheaper and cheaper as I go down my list. I'm going for the original trendsetter of found footage movies, going for Blair Witch Project, which I'm a massive fan of. I absolutely adore the Blair Witch Project. And one of the biggest mistakes I think I've ever made as a movie fan was when Blair Witch came out, I didn't book my tickets in advance for the opening night. I went to the cinema and it was sold out. And I was absolutely gutted, and I went to see East is East instead, which is a fine film, another yeah. another good comedy. But this is a trend for you, isn't it? With Fifty Shades yeah. of Grey earlier this year. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, um, <laughs> I still have never seen Blair Witch at the cinema, which is one of my biggest regrets because I imagine watching that when it's a brand new thing and you haven't quite got your head around that faux found footage marketing that was so well uh, done in the build-up to the release of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still had a massive effect. I mean, it's like Steve said with Paranormal Activity. It's one of those ones that if you watch on your own in the dark, it's, it's extremely uncomfortable. And it really excels in what it doesn't show you as opposed to what you can actually see because ultimately you don't really see anything in the whole film. Um, maybe a glimmer of something right at the very end. But other than that, you mostly preying on the tension amongst the characters as it slowly builds towards this dark, dark uh, climax. Um, I think it's a genius piece of filmmaking and it just shows the power of the found footage genre when it's done really well. So, love that one. And made for approximately $22,000 if Wikipedia is to be believed. So that's truly very impressive and it must have made that hundreds of times over. Um, it was a box office phenomenon when it first came out. And I'm going to finish on the cheapest of them all. And I knew this one wasn't big budget when I started looking into it, but I was quite surprised for how little it was made. And I'm going with El Mariachi. Oh, yeah. Which was made for $7,000. Absolutely unbelievable. For those who are unfamiliar, it's the first of Robert Rodriguez's um, Mexican trilogy. So it's the spiritual prequel or at least original version of Desperado which I'm sure more people have seen and this is gritty and it's low budget and it's down and dirty and rough but it's so entertaining and over the top silliness with the action but oh so cool at the same time and one of the interesting facts for for people who are fans of this series Carlos Gallardo who is the co-producer of this film also stars as the mariachi in this and then he turns up is one of the reinforcements in Desperado is <laughs> one of the mariachis backup guys with a guitar. He's so, got the rocket launcher, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's got that <laughs> on his face as he's yeah. firing away. So I like the continuity with that. It sort of links those two films together. Uh, it was a nice nod to the original. Um, but if you're a fan of Desperado, you've never seen El Mariachi, it's well worth going back and seeing just to see how the series uh, began. And if you're a fan of anything that Robert Rodriguez has done, you're guaranteed to enjoy it and yeah another very profitable venture which apparently 
It was originally only intended for the Mexican home video market, hence why it was such low budget. But my word, it's launched some stellar careers and, and made mm. a lot of money in the process. So, yeah, very cool film. Cool. Excellent. That brings an end to our uh, triple bill for this week, then. Uh, just one thing left from us now before we go. That's recommendations for the week ahead. I'm going to go with Sunday, 20 past one in the morning. So you might want to set your planners for this one. And that is Clerks on Film 4. Another low budget classic. Yeah, could have fit into our category, I think. It could indeed. Yeah. Owen? Um, Very quickly, I'm just going to mention the fact that Pernicious is on again this week, in case you missed it from our recommendation. Uh, Last week's on Thursday on the Horror Channel. Um, uh, Well, I suppose technically you'd call it Friday morning. It's on at 10 to 1. Um, But I'm actually also going to recommend on the Horror Channel again uh, a movie called The Dead which is made by some British guys, filmed in Africa. Very slow, marauding zombie film. Uh, bit unlike others of its kind. Uh, and that's on, on Saturday at 9 o'clock on the Horror Channel. And Matt? I'm going for one of my favourite films of last year, which is Gone Girl. And that's on Sky Movies' Crime and Thriller Channel on this coming Saturday at 9pm. Excellent. Yes, so that's all for this week's Fail Critics Podcast. Sports. As always, thank you all for listening, and we'll be back around the same time next week. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, on Twitter at failedcritics, and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash failedcritics. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.